3: Am I supposed to be talking? I can't hear anything. I'm trying to get my earbuds to work here. Sometimes they just don't uh, make a connection. I don't know. I don't know. It's not like professional equipment. 860522984. I'm working on a, um, you know, I'm just going to collect all of his misspeaks. I love his misspeaks. Independent analysis, they, uh, excuse me, independent analysts have confirmed. So we're going to continue to responsibly use that national asset, strategic petroleum, strategic petroleum reserve. <laughs> Gene and Harwinson, what's going on, you miserable, depressed Hi, person? Steinberg, how the heck are you? Hello, Gene. <laughs> I was just going to say I was listening in on your conversations, and I lost my dad a few years ago, and I was helping my mom clean the house out, and I came across a shoebox. My mm-hmm. father saved everything. It was a box full of oil receipts. Okay. And I looked in the box, and they filled up their oil in 1965. Oh, Lord. They filled up their oil tank for 19.9 cents a gallon. Uh, so how much was it total? Well, 275 gallons times 19 cents. <laughs> yeah, so it was uh, like 40 if it was bucks. 20
4: cents, it would be 40 bucks or something. <laughs> wow.
3: That was nice. that's better than a couple of grand, huh? Well, you know, in 1974, I got my license. my first car, I paid 33.9 for gas. That's nice. My first car I bought a, uh, I bought a car for 50 bucks. It was a Plymouth Fury from, I don't know, 1963 or something. It was an old car. Those were the, I like reminiscing like that. I like when I find an old receipt, but they're not usually that old. But I love finding old receipts. Thank you, Gene, for that. That's some nice nostalgia from Gene. Eight six zero five two two nine eight four two. We're gonna get ourselves a little traffic update right now. Going to the BPS Lawyers Traffic Center. Hello there, Mark Christopher. Well, I started driving in nineteen eighty one. Gas price was a buck thirty one a gallon. So. Mm-hmm. And how did you get the money? How did you get the buck thirty uh, one? I think I was mowing lawns and I worked at a pet store. Perfect. Yep. Yeah. You and, can mow <laughs> the pets too. I'm well well yeah. Sometimes you had to the clip the, the, the pets. Sure. Well I let the groomers do that, but I helped the groomers out too. So
1: yeah, play It was. played the music.
3: Uh, played the mu- yeah, kept it kept everybody happy, played <laughs> some good music in the back room and and I flooded the fish department. Uh the, the great Morton Ruth Brown Down there in Florida now, retired, but I apologize for uh, flooding your uh, fish department many, many times. WTIC, good afternoon. I'm really excited about this segment. Renee Coleman-Mitchell is joining us. She was the commissioner of public health under Governor Lamont. Until May of 2020, when he fired her, this was the early stages of the COVID crisis, and she's filed a federal lawsuit. She did file one uh, many months ago against the state of Connecticut, alleging racial discrimination. And in the CT Examiner, she has a, uh, an op-ed piece. The title is Former Lamont DPH Commissioner, Governors' Politics Caused Needless Deaths. Joining us now, Renee Coleman Mitchell. Renee, thank you for being here once again. And uh, hang on, I'm trying to get you on the air. There you go.
0: Yeah.
3: Thank you for being here.
0: Absolutely. Good afternoon, Todd.
3: Good afternoon to you. Tell us about why you are out there making this case during this election year.
0: Uh, for for a couple of reasons. One is I want people to understand that when they are deciding to make a decision. And this is not about one party versus another. It's more or less to look very specifically at the character qualities of the individual. And I can give insight to what I experienced being in the administration with Governor Ned Lamont, the character qualities that I experienced. And one in particular that you've all heard me speak about is the fact that needless deaths occurred during COVID-19. What I want to point out, the interesting thing is that as he has campaigned this last several months, there's been a tout, a brag about how well Connecticut has done in regards to addressing COVID-19. Mm-hmm. But if you were to truly look at the number of deaths within very vulnerable populations, um, that would give a very different scenario. And ultimately, the statements that the governor is making truly is a slap in the face to many people in the state who have lost their loved ones. So
3: So that that was was a particular, you're kind of bringing us back to the early stages when the uh, the I-95 corridor seemed to be the travel zone of COVID from New York down into the New England states and and Connecticut first amongst those. And and you could watch the, if you had a weighted map of where it hit, you could see that it flowed freely from Connecticut, uh, from New York into Connecticut and beyond. And there was something about that pattern that you could look at and you could think, wow, why isn't something being done to stop it and part two what you just articulated renee and that is that you could tell it was hitting senior citizens vulnerable communities as they like to call them which were sitting ducks and for whom the most protection sort of should have been provided seemed like it wasn't
0: exactly you hit it the nail on the head todd and that's why i thought it would be very interesting to bring this uh, agenda forward and having folks to really ask the questions about this past, this current administration, about what they have done and what they are saying. It's very different. Uh, the governor has, again, I stress it, touted how well Connecticut handled mm-hmm. COVID-19. But again, you articulated very well that there were very vulnerable populations, the elderly in aggregate settings and the nursing homes. And they suffer tremendously. And the, the fact that I really want to make is that it was needless.
3: Why was it needless? Explain that to us. Because
0: the governor did not listen to myself as the public health commissioner with 30-plus years. And I know folks have heard this over and over. No, they really haven't
3: that much. You You know, for people who are in the conversation like we are all the time, we've heard it a lot. But the average person, I think, is numbed by the a happy go lucky attitude that the governor puts out into the airwaves when he talks about this stuff and they they absorb the attitude because they don't know the details.
0: Well, well let me let me step back then. I was appointed, hand selected by the governor, April 1st, 2019 to become the public health commissioner. I brought with me 30 plus years of public health practitioner experience. Direct experience in public health with the credentials to support it. I had worked in the Department of Public Health for over, you know, about 21 years in total.
3: And I recall, so I was- Renee, that shortly before we became aware of COVID, you'd already been to the White House and, and been briefed and you knew all the, the stuff that was coming down the pike, right?
0: Absolutely. So Todd, here, here's the thing. Because of my background in public health, it's seen as it is an infectious disease that was occurring, a respiratory illness. I knew that there had to be certain precautions that needed to be taken. But the the nail on the head was when the conversation occurred with all public health commissioners around the country, had with Vice President Pence, who was at that time appointed by the president, Mm -hmm. President Trump, to specifically be over the COVID-19 task force for the White House. And he at that time made it very clear what they were seeing in California and in Washington was that the nursing home situation was a wildfire. And I already had seen and had been experiencing it as commissioner here in Connecticut, what was being, what was happening on a daily basis with each of the nursing homes, providing their numbers of those that were COVID-19 positive and the number of those that were uh, the number of deaths. So this was something that I had been talking about prior to the conference call with the vice president of the United States.
3: Talking about with whom? Are you talking about publicly with us or are you talking about to the governor?
0: I talked to the governor and his people, and they would not listen, they would not take heed to what I was trying to tell them.
3: Did you get the feeling like there was some silent hand controlling them, that they had already gotten some other ideas in their head, that they weren't going Absolutely. to follow the best
0: protocols? Absolutely, that... Todd. And one of the biggest things is that because on a national basis, things, what was being talked about was that there was going to be the, a huge surge that was going to occur. And so there was all focus on preparing approximately 8,000 beds in the state of Connecticut throughout the state in preparation for the surge that the hospitals would not be able to address. Mm-hmm. And there was total ignoring of anything I said in regards to the vulnerable population, the nursing home populations, and the fact that we had to do our outreach and education to the people in the state.
3: Do you have any idea where this Information flow or guidance or whatever it was that was causing the state of Connecticut to respond in an anti public health manner. I think that's what you're describing because you were the source of the best public health information and you were ignored. So what were they listening to?
0: In February of 2019, I'm sorry, 2020, the governor appointed the former, at that time he was the commissioner of the Department of Administrative Services, Josh Cabal, as his incident command lead to the COVID-19 response in Connecticut. That was February 2020. I was not told. I was neither informed. It was something that was put in place by the governor. I must detail the fact that Josh Cabal does not have a master's in public health nor a doctorate and no public health experience
3: which suggests that they saw this as some kind of political problem or political opportunity and they viewed that as being more important than the health of the people of the state of connecticut
0: that's an interesting way that you express it and this in my view i do truly say that it was political health which was at the cost of many of our most vulnerable in the state who lost their lives needlessly
3: that's pretty shocking stuff. Do you do you have any other observations from that period of time that we should know about? Any thoughts that have occurred well, to you about what was going there. on cuz you got you got caught up in a storm and you were being undermined while you were trying to protect the people of the state?
0: Absolutely. From February until my very public humiliating dismissal on May 11th, 2020, I was completely cut out of the entire planning process of addressing COVID-19 on behalf of Connecticut residents completely and so what I was left to do was to only focus with folks that were willing and could work with me because systematically my staff that were very specifically delegated to work on different things regarding COVID-19 were taken and reassigned. Uh, I again wasn't brought into the very high-level meetings. Remember the governor had a task force that he put together and that task force leads were dr co and i uh, the woman from uh pepsico corporation yes yes no public health experience but that yes, was
3: totally bizarre it was like the friends and uh no and,
0: Todd, Todd, oh. it wasn't bizarre this is someone that the governor had gone to school with this is one of his friends <laughs> exactly. so that explains it exactly and what you'll see there's a common theme there that what the governor has spoken about in regards to COVID-19 and how well Connecticut did is not the true story if you look at the numbers, especially in certain populations. And what we're dealing with is that we're at a very critical time here in Connecticut where we need to really look at what are the character qualities of the individuals that are running. And when you have a governor who is going to put someone in charge of a public health pandemic with no public health experience you need to question why and what was the outcome
3: we're talking with renee coleman mitchell who was the head of the department of public health as covid began and remarkably so if this started in february uh as a rough timeline march april may three months into it at the most critical moments the governor was throwing you out so that he could make sure his key political advisor had a free hand in making non-public health decisions with regard to the public health crisis.
0: Correct. And using some of my staff. So as of March of 2020, I was told by Josh Cabal that I would no longer be the face or the person to, as the commissioner, be the face or the person to share what was going on regarding COVID-19 at those, remember those 4 o'clock per day pressers? Yes. Um, they, so
3: they the they first. threw you out of the control center for the that COVID response but and you, you were the, the person patient who patient. had the most training.
0: That is correct. And I'm, I'm going to give you a little sidebar on that. Whenever you have a public health crisis, it's very important for the public to be well informed and to allay concerns and answer questions. And for them to have continuity in seeing The person that's in front of them, giving them information. Well, wait a sec. If
3: if the governor's office wanted to remove the continuity and the familiarity with the face of uh, who is educated and understood, they must have had something else
0: in mind. And that's the question. Why would the governor remove the public health commissioner from her duties with 30 plus years experience during the worst pandemic of our lives? In the past 100 plus years now right yeah what's
3: the answer to that
0: what's the answer to that and i think that's a question that he could best answer right but i do know that it was political health instead and that's the thing that gets me because needlessly lives were lost it makes you look at the character of the individual and say what was his agenda to allow such, you know, atrocity, I call it,
3: to occur. No, I think you're right, but my read of the governor is he doesn't measure. He doesn't care what happens to people. He cares what happens to him.
0: And that's what needs to be thought about, needs to be questioned when people are making decisions. Again, let me give you an example. There, My staff were removed from me, reassigned. Excuse no me, Renee, we've just case. got
3: about 90 seconds, but keep with that thought. Go ahead.
0: Right. And I really want people to look at what we're dealing with in regards to character qualities
3: of this governor yeah be specific though what do you what I is will it you be think
0: very specific. when I was fired humiliated and fired on may 11th he called on May 13th he made very key specific assurances that he would help me move forward in light of the fact that it had now gone national it is now what's today the 19th of October I have not heard a single word from him he has gone silent in two this and a half years this is a man who says one thing but does another.
3: So you're saying he—you were a national figure in the public health industry. He crudely whacked you out of your position, and that caused a damage to your reputation and my and like
0: career and, and to like your like-
3: career. Yes, and he did. And then he made assurances to you he was going to make you whole,
0: Absolutely. like
3: benefits, continued benefits,
0: Absolutely. and
3: severance pay, and that never happened.
0: Absolutely, nothing has happened. He's gone radio silent.
3: This is Ned Lamont in a nutshell. Like, you are the, um, I don't even know what the, what the word is, but you symbolize the way he does business.
0: Absolutely. And again, I say, he touts and brags about the diversity in his administration. Believe me when I tell you that does not cancel out the discrimination that occurs not only at the Department, the department of Public, within the Department of Public Health and myself, but other departments.
3: Yes, I mean, but, but what we're talking the about is tokenism.
0: He's the just department of transportation. Absolutely,
3: he views minorities as tokens, so he can count them up on his hand.
0: And that's what's happened in these last several months. All of this, all of a sudden, crime is an issue where crime has been rising for the last couple of years. All right, in Renee, London. we're
3: out of time. Can you come back and visit again? Absolutely. All right, Renee Coleman Mitchell, former head of the Department of Public Health. I'll I'll tell you in a few minutes how you can get that article that she wrote. Thank you so much for being here, Renee. Great to talk Absolutely. with you again. Thank
0: you for having me. Take
3: Alrighty. care. righty. Renee Coleman Mitchell. That's a there it is.
0: Every call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
1: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy.
2: You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medella is your reward. Medella, the mark of a fighter. Trick responsibly, beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois.
3: I've been telling you about Ned Lamont for years, right there in a nutshell. I love talking to Renee Coleman Mitchell, former head of the Department of Public Health. She was fired by Ned, really right at the commencement of uh, COVID. He decided Josh belonged in charge, even though Josh didn't know anything about dealing with a crisis like that. But I think Josh was in a was a good manager and he knew how to do what was most important to Ned, which was to ignore the imperatives of the health crisis and to focus on reelection. And to me, my read always has been that what Jolly Ned was up to was trying to figure out, not that he was unique in this. I believe that all of the governors in the Northeast were up to the same game and were using the same consultant to advise them on how to respond to covid in such a manner as to maximize their political opportunities and the stupidity of leaving senior citizens abandoned in captivity of nursing homes was utterly irresponsible and 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 um, i i guess criminal is the right word to use even though As elected officials, I'm not sure that they committed any specific crimes because they don't make laws against doing what they do. Tom in Bristol, hi.
4: Hey, Todd. Listen, I was very interested in what Renee had to say, and I'm totally supportive, and I'm going to vote for Bob. But um, I wasn't sure, I couldn't tell from this conversation what her, uh, exactly what it was that lamont did that she thought he shouldn't have done in terms of the the nursing home people or what he he did do that he shouldn't have done
3: well yes we we had a short amount of time so so couldn't get into too much detail but essentially what she's saying is he he left them captive and didn't offer protection because that's what happened they were locked in their nursing homes they weren't allowed to have family visit if they were sick you recall all those issues
0: and, oh, that. Yeah. and there yeah. wasn't
3: protection offered to make sure that they would be safe so in my scenario of how you would properly handle covid that was the community that was most in danger and you would have focused right. resources only on the on the vulnerable communities like people in nursing homes and other care facilities and let everybody else make their own decisions
4: just wondering exactly what could he I'm not trying to defend the guy but I'm just wondering exactly what he should have done
3: Well he should have protected them so for example you would have put a ring the the obvious thing would be make a ring of safety around those to keep covid out and and you recall that one of the issues nursing homes had was that there was a free flow of employees from one nursing home to another because they would have multiple jobs. So that would have been the thing where government would have done an emergency intervention if it cared. Bunker those people down, pay them extra money up front and keep them living at the nursing home and make sure that they weren't going out and spreading disease into the nursing home. There, there's one obvious explanation. Thank you, Tom. I gotta to hold you there.
1: Live from the NJ Diet Studios on WTIC News Talk ten eighty.
3: WTIC, it's a good afternoon to you from me. So the question was, what are Renee's what what are her specific recommendations that should have been going on early on in COVID. And what she wrote in her op-ed was basically what I was saying, and that he is, first of all, he turned away from public health professionals and used political people. She says, why did the governor's administration focus on statewide bed availability, ignoring the fact that the most vulnerable populations, nursing home residents, communities of color, and underserved communities should have been the priority back then? Wouldn't the time, focus, and resources have been better used to serving uh, the saving of lives and taking care of the most vulnerable, which was the commissioner's focus, but she was ignored? Why did so many nursing home residents lose their lives when precautions could have been taken and the commissioner not have been ignored? So, you know, this is focused on her perspective as being the person who knew what you should do and being ignored, but... I think it's self-explanatory that if you were the one sitting there and you had experienced people and educated people in terms of public health and you saw a public health crisis coming, the first thing you would do is say, okay, who's most at danger? Who's most at risk? Because I'm not going to shut down the whole state. That would have been my reaction. I'm not going to shut down the whole state. Tell me who needs protection. And we'll give everybody else the information they need to navigate their lives as safely as possible. That seems obvious, and and that obviously wasn't done. We can talk more about it later, but Joe Markley joins us now. He's a regular at this time, except he had a very leisurely last couple of months, and we haven't seen him much. Nice <laughs> to have you back there, Joe. Well, it hasn't. A couple of months is an exaggeration. Okay, no, three but... or four months. It's <laughs> been...
4: Well, anyways, it's good to be back. And, you know, I I, I never can resist sounding in on or or, or weighing in on what you're talking about. I was very involved as a legislator with nursing homes specifically. I was always on the Human Services Committee. The biggest piece of legislation I was involved in um, involved uh, home care and nursing homes. And it was it's not just obvious after the fact. It was obvious at the time that um, the people he needed to protect the most vulnerable population, it was instantly clear, were the elderly. They were in nursing homes where effectively they could be protected. It was a perfect situation to keep them safe.
3: Yes, that's a nice way of looking at it. Yeah,
4: you'd say, okay, here's the people we have to protect. We've already got them together. We don't have to move them somewhere. All we have to do is put um, policies in place.
3: But, Joe, there was the challenge of, one, them being held captive, and, two, them being cared for on a daily basis by people who weren't making a lot of money and would tend to have multiple jobs in similar facilities, so they would leave one nursing home and go off to the next nursing home. So really you would need a very invasive kind of response to create a secure atmosphere, wouldn't you? But but as you said, so much less invasive. If it's targeted to this very small part
4: of the population, both the um, people at risk and the people caring for them versus saying, let's shut down the whole state. I mean, talk about invasive. Um, And if it costs the state money again, as you suggested, um, you'd say, how how much cheaper would it be to give the nursing home workers uh, a little more money to make sure that they can, um, they could confine themselves to one nursing home? And uh, and maybe even get more people, if you needed to, into that industry temporarily by offering a a, a premium, uh, rather than shutting down the businesses of the whole state. We still would have been uh, far far better off. And it isn't something simply after the fact; it's something that um, I in think real time. Sure, right
3: you were saying and, it, I was saying it, a lot of people yeah, were saying it, and I think exactly. it's obvious. It's not like we're brilliant. It no, it's but, it's plain as day.
4: That's right. Now the the trouble with it politically, electorally, is that all of this is ancient history. So I feel like it, it, Governor Lamont could really be taken to task for this, but basically the voting population, I believe, has, has moved on. And to bring it up at this point, um, it, it, I, I don't think people would respond well to it. I just don't think it's, it should be a vulnerability because I think he handled it very poorly. But I don't think it's really going to work against them. Yes,
3: but in terms of where we sit as as having a megaphone out into people's consciousness, I think it's important for people to look at it and to understand that it's very clear that he's done a horrible job with COVID and that most people give him credit for having done a good job simply because he was the leader and we're still here, I think. So people tend to give him credit. Like what else was he supposed to do? He had a big crisis on his hands. Well, he was supposed to make some good decisions instead of horrible ones and save lives instead of allowing 11,400 people to die.
4: Yes, the the only thing he did to earn him this uh good good vibration after this disaster was going interrupting your show every day. Um, and asking Josh what was going on, I mean, and really, for that that's...
3: alone, he should be thrown out of office
4: <laughs> that's right. we should elect Josh, he was running the state,
3: yeah, and, you know the
4: trouble with the trouble with pinning anything on Lamont is is epitomized by your nickname Jolly Ned, mm-hmm. um because i, I it, unless you can make him a little bit of a laughing stock unless you can expose him as you 've tried to for these four years as a guy who 's just in over his head. People look at him and say, well, he seems like a nice guy. He seems like he's trying hard, Um, all those kinds of things. And the fact is, he's just kind of getting by on a smile and not much. Um, And and that's all
3: people require of him, remarkably. That's
4: that's right. That's all they're expecting at this point, and that's a shame because uh, Connecticut deserves better.
3: But this is the uh, miraculous thing, I think, of his mode of navigating life as a blessed human being who has disproportionate power in direct inversion to the actual efforts and contribution that he's put out into the world. And and most of his energies, it seems, have been focused on how to mitigate that unfortunate circumstance. Because really, being born into one of the filthiest rich commu- uh, families in in your community is a horrible thing to try to survive. And his way of surviving, it was to become a con man was to trick people into thinking he was a lovable character, so that they would ignore the fact that he had all these blessings and not expect much of him.
4: It, it, certainly, there's a and there's a kind of a sense of entitlement about the fact that, with a very thin resume, he would wake up and say, "You know what? I ought to be is a U.S. senator or the governor or something like that." But really, I'm 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 made for bigger things. Uh, I don't think he was made for big things at all. I think that he was made to uh, enjoy his millions and, uh, and and maybe not make any great impact on society, but he had uh, ambitions or perhaps his wife had ambitions for him. And uh, now we're, stuck with them, And whether we can get rid of them
3: next
4: <laughs> month or not let's is, uh, hope. is a open question.
3: Oh, let's hope. But I don't think it's that he has some high sense of his own possibilities uh, being deserved. I think he just understands that when you're rich, you can do whatever you want. And therefore, why not buy yourself some kind of stature that matches up to the importance that was assigned to you at birth? And I think it's that disparity that drives him, that he's He's been the, the the suggestion of being born so wealthy is you must be a person of some magnitude and therefore he wants a credential that give, makes him look like he's a credible human being, not just tagging along with his wife.
4: You know, this is why I think it's important that people look for politicians that believe in something and not just in themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, if you're talking about somebody's principles, you have something to judge them by. And on principle, on the principles that Ned Lamont uh, advocates, I would reject them. And I think, honestly, a majority of the people in the state are, are, would reject them. He's a, he's a full blown progressive. He's well to the left of, of the voting population, even in Connecticut. Yeah. But if we make it all into something about um, what my talents are and what my abilities are, It becomes far harder to judge a person.
3: No, you're Um, right. It it, it should all be based on principles, the stated principles that you're going to live by and your proven ability to do it. So that's why we can look at things like his response to COVID and see that he clearly doesn't have any any principles that he ascribes to when he's doing this kind of thing, except his own political survival. Yeah, yeah. And, And I don't know
4: what his, you know, we've got these polls. Um, there was one a few weeks ago that had him um comfortably ahead in the governor's race. And then the one that came out from Tony Fabrizio just a couple of days ago uh, that had him up, I think, just six points. And, you know, the question in my mind, the polls have become notoriously unreliable, but they're not. Let's say they're they're not totally unreliable, but they're they're nothing you can you can bank on. I don't know if this is an indication of a race that's tightening or if it's simply two different polls giving two different results, I would expect the race to tighten. If the first poll had had Lamont up something like 15 or 16 points, I don't see that kind of a margin for him. Um, I think that there was still a lot of room for Stefanowski just to pick up Republicans mm-hmm. uh, in that poll. I think he was just at 70%. So as Republicans come home a little bit and so forth, uh, the race would be bound to tighten. You know, whatever happens at the top of the ticket, Todd, um it's going to be very important for everyone else who's running and i think that one of the most interesting things is we've suddenly got two competitive congressional races in connecticut something we haven't had for several cycles um very visibly george logan against johanna hayes in the fifth district is clearly a close race and i think that mike france has sneaked up on joe courtney in the second district and that's often a very difficult district to predict and one where incumbents can get surprised. Um, but I think both of those races could be extremely competitive, but a lot of it's going to depend on, on what happens at the top of the ticket. And uh, even if Stefanowski, uh, even if Stefanowski loses, if he's within two or three or four or five points, that's a lot different than if it's uh 10 or 12 or, or 15
3: points. Well, don't you assume it's, in, don't you assume it's inside of five points at this point?
4: I don't know. I no, I wouldn't say that. I assume that um, I would hope that it is. But I'm not I'm not sure that it is.
3: We're talking um, to Joe Markley, former state senator. To what degree do you think there there appears to be a um, a strong tide developing for Republicans? Do you see it that way? And, and to what extent would that tide implicate the elections going on here?
4: I think it, it can only help. But I'd also say that it can only help so much, again, especially in the governor's race. I think people tend to look at the governor's races um, as, a, as a different thing than the national situation, and rightly so. Um, I, I don't know that, that Biden's unpopularity and the general uh, collapse of, of the Democratic uh, positions, you know, the, the disaster that they brought on us with inflation and uh, foreign policy and everything, necessarily translates to who do you want to run your, have running your state. Um, I think that it has benefited Leora Levy. Uh, it, it, there you've got a situation, a woman that really was um, essentially unknown um, just a few months ago, who's actually in the in Fabrizio poll, was a little closer to Blumenthal than Stefanowski was to Lamont. Mm-hmm. And I think that shows that nationally people are ready to turn against the Democrats. Um, and Leora, who I've said before on this show, I think Leora could, could be and uh, in some ways already is a terrific candidate, um, is now starting her her TV campaign is starting up again. And uh, I think that there is a uh, there is an outside chance of a surprise there, a surprise that I would love to see. My goodness, yes. I, I can't tell you how what, what the difference between Leora Levy and Richard Blumenthal in the Senate um, is about as as that would be about as big an improvement as one could imagine. Well, Plus politics. the
3: defeat of uh, the d- defeat of Dick Blumenthal would be something that you have to assume the gods of politics would be rooting for. Yes. Well, just to just he, to restore order to the universe.
4: Yeah. It, he 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 has he has had his run and I really don't have anything against the man on a certain level. But uh, it's time to move on from Dick Blumenthal. He's he's been in my political life long enough. And Leora Levy, what a breath of fresh air she'd be. And what a fighter she's been. You know, I mean, I've admired the fact that I think she's only gotten more aggressive and firmer in her convictions as the campaign has progressed. Well, she's
3: been getting her footing. And and as you know, for a first-time candidate, that's a tough thing to do.
4: Yes, it is indeed, and and it and it took her a while, and I don't know that she's completely 100% there. But uh, I hope that she I hope she wins, and if she doesn't win, I hope she does comes close enough that it keeps her um, involved because I think she has a lot of potential as a leader in Connecticut.
3: Joe Markley, good to have you back, sir. Thank you so much.
4: My pleasure, Todd.
3: All right, we'll talk to you again soon. Five o'clock hour coming up. We have some guests. We have some rants.